Well, good evening. It's been a real privilege and just a great blessing to um, get to preach through the book of Galatians with, with my uh, fellow staff members and just listening to them preach and learning from them and having a, an opportunity. I, if I could be honest, I, I didn't expect to get more than one sermon at the very most, um, and so I'm, I'm glad to, to have um, a third tonight. But it's, it's a blessing to preach God's word. And we'll be in the book of Galatians, uh, chapter 3. And I'll be preaching on the first nine verses. So Galatians, chapter 3, uh, starting in verse 1. I'll read it, and then I'll pray for the Lord to bless us. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified, Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith, are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word is so powerful. It is so good. It convicts us, but it also draws our attention back to the Lord Jesus Christ. It shows us the ugliness of our sin, but it also shows us the sweetness of your gospel of grace. Lord, show us Christ tonight, not that we would trust in any new gospel, any new way, but we would trust in the old, old gospel and goes all the way to the beginning of your people. Lord, we pray this in Christ's precious name. Amen. The Galatians have been bewitched. They have had a spell cast upon them. They've been possessed or hypnotized or mesmerized, if you prefer. Well, not literally. But that's what it looks like when Paul is writing to the Galatian church. It looks like someone has cast a spell on them. That's how he opens up this text with rather harsh words. He says in verse 1, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It's really Paul's way of saying that I don't even recognize you anymore. You look like a new people. You used to be wise and faithful, and strong in the Lord, and now you've become foolish. Now you've become so easily led astray. How did that happen? How did they go from being strong in the Lord to being fools led off course? Well, the simple reality is is that they messed with the gospel. They began to wander off course. They really began to confuse grace and law. They began to think that their salvation was a product not of God's free grace entirely, but a product of grace as well as their works of the law. In other words, 
they began to add to the gospel. And this is an enormous mistake. It's a fundamental mistake that Christians can make because the gospel is already perfect, exactly the way that it is. And any attempt to add to it will only spoil the work of Christ. A few years ago when I was in high school, I had a really great opportunity to go to uh, the Louvre in uh, Paris, France. And at the Louvre, I got to see one of uh, history's priceless works of art, the Mona Lisa. And let's just imagine that while I'm there seeing the Mona Lisa, the glass case had been forgotten. Nobody put it up that day. And let's just imagine that I think Lisa would look a whole lot better with purple hair. Now, if I had actually gone and painted purple hair onto the Mona Lisa, not only would I not be making that piece of artwork any better, I would go down in infamy as somebody who destroyed a priceless work of art. And it's really very similar with the gospel. We think that we're adding to it, making it better, making it more uh, appealing. We're just spoiling Christ's perfect, perfect work. And this is what the Galatians were very close to doing. This is what they were being asked to do by the Judaizers teaching them. But how is it that we can learn from their mistake? How can we avoid the temptation to add to the gospel, to add it to our own works of the law? Well, there's two things, two broad points Paul gives us tonight. Two things that will keep us on the right course. The first point is this. He says, remember your experience of grace. Remember how you experienced grace. And secondly, remember the promise of grace. If you want to think of it in a slightly different way, he might be saying, remember the subjective truths of the gospel, how you experience them, but also remember the objective promises of God's gospel. Both are important, and he focuses on both tonight. Let's start with our first point, remember your experience of grace. And there's several things here that he reminds the Galatian Christians to remember that they experienced. The first thing is, is he wants them to remember when they saw Christ crucified. Look at what he says in verse 1. In the second half, he says, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. And coming to us in English, that, that seems like a rather clunky, sort of odd sentence. But Paul is using very, very intentional language here. First, he's focusing on the eyes. It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. And what he's doing there is he's really making a play off of his last statement in verse 1. He's talking about the bewitchment that has overcome them. You see, at the time, it was a, a cultural idea, a cultural belief, you might say, that if someone was going to be bewitched, it would happen through the eyes. To be bewitched was receiving an evil eye, a, a spell-cast uh, eye. And so now he's saying essentially this. At one point, your eyes were captivated by Christ. At one point, you were focused on him. But at some point you became bewitched. At some point, your eyes were taken away from Christ and to put on something else that isn't nearly as good. But then he says, Jesus Christ was 
publicly portrayed as crucified. And this is a bit confusing because it sounds like Paul is saying that they actually saw Jesus Christ crucified. But he's not really saying that. Jesus was crucified nearly 20 years before uh, Paul wrote this letter. Uh, the crucifixion happened in a very faraway city. It didn't happen anywhere near uh, Galatia. It happened in Jerusalem. And so he's not literally saying that they witnessed the, re- uh, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Rather, he's using advertisement language. For something to be publicly portrayed was something to be, to be advertised broadly so that everyone knew about it. If there was a house for sale in ancient Rome, it might be publicly portrayed in the marketplace that this house is for sale and this is the price. Or if there was a law or a decree passed, everyone would know because there would be a written decree posted somewhere for all to see. You might think of it as something like a modern uh, billboard or a newspaper or an internet article, an event that everybody is talking about, writing about, speaking about. But then we have to ask ourselves, what does Paul mean when he uses this phrase, that Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? What is he exactly talking about? Because Paul didn't walk around with a big picture of Jesus Christ on the cross. He didn't walk around and set up billboards billboards as his ministry in Galatia and Corinth and Ephesus and Rome. No, I think what Paul is talking about is his preaching. That when he preached, it had the effect of presenting before them in a vivid way Christ and him crucified. We know that this is the the central concern of Paul, that everywhere he went, that was his message. That's what he was concerned with conveying. He says in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2, he says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That was the center. That was the message Paul was giving. And everything else he was doing in his ministry was just explaining the significance of that one grand event, Christ crucified. You may have heard the phrase that a picture is worth a thousand words. But Paul actually used words, not pictures. And he probably used thousands and thousands of them explaining the significance of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. That is to say, he didn't just tell people that Christ died. He didn't just tell people the bare facts of the gospel. He explained it in great detail. He applied it in powerful ways. He moved people to embrace the gospel. He showed people that they needed Christ desperately. And when Paul preached, I think he's simply saying this, you saw Jesus Christ crucified. You saw the love of God. You saw Christ's amazing sacrifice of love for you. You saw how desperately you needed that grace. And they really need to remember that again. They need to go back to that memory. And this is something that you and I can do as well. When was a time that you saw Christ crucified? When was the word preached to you in such a way that it took hold of you, that it gripped you, that it changed you, that you can't forget about it? Perhaps it was a time when you first came to faith and you remember the preacher. 
You remember who spoke the gospel to you. Remember, maybe it was just a time where you grew very deeply in your faith. Whatever it may be, we should remember those moments. We can't forget them. We can't let those pass away into our memory. Because the danger is, is that Christ may be, our eyes may be cast away from Christ, lest we forget those memories. Well, the second thing Paul wants them to remember is not just when they saw Christ crucified, but when they uh, received the Spirit of God. He says in verses uh, 2 and verse 5, I'll I'll combine these two together because I think Paul is making a very similar point here. Look what he says in verse 2 and 5. He says, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And then in verse 5, Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or hearing with faith? It's a really good question he's asking. He actually says, I only need to ask this one question. If I can get you to answer this question right, the matter is settled. There's hope for you. If you can remember the answer to this question, well, what is it? How did you receive the Spirit? When did he come to you? And there's only two options. He either came to you by works of the law. In other words, you did something. You earned him. You begged the Spirit. Or he came by hearing and hearing with faith. Before he gives them a chance to answer that, we should ask ourselves, what does he mean when he says, receive the Spirit? Well, what he's talking about here is narrowly the 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 saving work of the Spirit. When the Spirit brought salvation, and the Spirit does that in a variety of ways, first the Spirit brings new life to new converts. He brings regeneration. I always love the picture of uh, the valley of dry bones with the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 37. And he's looking out at this valley of dead, dry bones, and the Spirit of God hovers over regenerates their life, and he brings them back to life. And they hear the word of God with faith. The Spirit animates dead sinners. And then the Spirit applies redemption to those now living saints of God. He grants them faith. He indwells them. He converts them. He empowers them for the Christian life. In other words, Paul's saying, don't you remember when you were profoundly changed forever? His work, that is the work of the Spirit, is unmistakable. When the Spirit came, he brought change, new life, unity in the church. He brought fellowship with God. He gave gifts, spiritual gifts, that is. He bore fruit among the people. He gave them assurance, and he gave them much, much more. And not only this, but he also focuses on something else. That is, in the early church, when the gospel was preached, it was often accompanied by powerful works and miracles of the Spirit. We see this in Acts 5, 12. He says, it says, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. So Paul's point is really clear. You couldn't have missed it. You know what it was like. You know how much it changed your city, your lives, your families. The Galatians really could not mess this question up. They knew how the Spirit had come. He came when they had faith. 
when Paul came into town and he preached the word of God, and they said, that word is right and true. The Spirit came among them. He goes on and he says in verse 3, Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? In other words, once they've answered that question, yeah, the Spirit did come when I had faith. Then he can move on to this next really important point, that if you began your salvation by a work of faith and by a work of the Spirit, then do you really think you're going to complete it by works of the law? By works of the flesh, he says. No, he's reminding them that the Spirit's work cannot be improved upon by the flesh. It can't be added onto by us. I love the way Paul says it in Romans 7, verse 18. He says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. There's nothing good that dwells in our flesh then why would we think that we can complete the work of the Spirit by adding on the works of the flesh? No, this truth is a humbling truth. It's one that reminds us that we neither start nor do we complete our salvation. We don't begin it, nor do we end it. In fact, it would be a great danger to us if God relied on us to complete our own salvation. I I really appreciate Charles Spurgeon's words. He says, if God were to put my salvation in my hands, I should be lost in 10 minutes. And I don't know that we would make it any longer than that. The Spirit begins our salvation and he ends it. No matter how sanctified we become, no matter how godly we may grow, no matter how Christ-like you may become in this life or the next, Your salvation will always be a work of justification by faith alone. Paul affirms this truth in a bit more positive way in Philippians 1.6. He says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That is a comforting, comforting truth. Well, then Paul concludes this point in verse 4. Um, He says this, he says, did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? And he concludes this point with with a bit of a warning, but also hope. It's warning as well as hope. Uh, He says here that um, they may have suffered so many things in vain. And that, that word there, suffer, can mean negative experiences, but it could also just more generally be experiences uh, in general, uh, that all that they've experienced by the Spirit of God, all that's happened since they've received the Spirit of God. And so Paul is probably saying something like this. After all that you've been through, all that you've seen, all that you've given up, all that you've come to know, are you really going to go back now? You've, you've been walking this road for so long. Are you really going to give it all up now? And if you do, then all of it was in vain. It was useless. It was pointless. In other words, your salvation then is just a big mistake. The Spirit failed, or as Paul said just a little earlier in chapter 2, verse 21, Christ died for no purpose. Then he ends by saying, if indeed it was in vain. It's a small 
little sentence, but I think it packs a really powerful punch. It expresses Paul's hope if, if that really is the case. He's holding out this great hope that the true Galatian believers will repent, they will return to Christ, God will prove to them that their salvation, that their experience is not in vain. They just need to remember what they've experienced and how they've experienced the grace of God. That's the first point for tonight. Secondly, they need to not only remember the experience of grace, they need to remember the promise of grace. He says in verse 6, Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Here, Paul almost seems to take a bold new turn. He's speaking of the Spirit, and then he takes us back to a very different place, but I think he's got a very good point in doing it. He takes us back to the Old Testament, really far back, uh, not even just to David. He takes us much further, all the way back to the book of Genesis, to the account of Abraham. And you got to hand it to Paul. This is a really, really smart move. And it's really smart because Abraham was the poster boy for the circumcision party and the Judaizers. Because they would say that Abraham was associated with circumcision. And their argument would go something like this. If, if you wanted to be truly a son of Abraham, a part of the people of God, well, you need to be circumcised. After all, that was given to Abraham but there's only one problem with this. That's not what the Old Testament teaches at all. Abraham, Paul reminds us, was justified on account of his faith. In fact, it says that his faith was counted as righteousness. That great word of imputation that by his faith God credited, credited to him a righteousness that was outside of him. And this happened well before Abraham was ever circumcised. In fact, Paul makes just this point in another book in Romans chapter 4, verses 9 through 11. Uh, if I could read that to you, it says this. For we say that Abraham was, that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. In other words, what's, what's Paul's grand point? My doctrine of justification by faith, it's not a new thing. I didn't just make it up. It's not a new doctrine, but an old one. He's reminding them that grace was always to be given by faith alone. Now, some people might argue with Paul and say, well, well, perhaps God granted that faith uh, to be righteousness just to Abraham. But then a little while afterward, he gave his people the law. And then he intended them for them to be saved in a new way. That maybe God made an exception for Abraham. But for the rest of us, it's law. After all, the law came later. And Paul even uh, answers this question a little while later in Galatians uh, 3. This is not my sermon, so I won't spend too long there. Uh, but look with me at Galatians 3 and verses 16 and 17. Paul answers that claim. He says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. And then in verse 17, The law 
which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. What Paul is saying here can't be more clear. God's giving of the law in no way made his promise of grace and faith and righteousness through faith to Abraham irrelevant. In other words, works do not replace grace. Law does not replace the promises of God. If the Judaizers are going to keep insisting on a doctrine of salvation by works, they're going to have to stop using Abraham as their poster boy. That's what Paul's saying to them. They're going to have to find someone new because you cannot make that argument by Abraham or by Scripture. Well, then Paul goes on. He says in verse 7 and verse 8, he says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you all the nations will be blessed. Now, if I were to ask you, when was the first time the gospel was ever preached? If you were to say, on the first day of Jesus' public ministry, you would be flat out wrong. Now, he's telling us that the gospel, through the scriptures, had been preached for thousands of years before Christ, always pointing to him, always foreshadowing him, always promising him and what he would accomplish. And faith in those days always made you a son of Abraham and a son of God. But there's another point we should see here that we need to tease out just for a little bit. This also shows us that God's story of salvation never changes. God always has one covenant of grace. The same covenant of grace that has existed since the very time of Adam and Eve. When he promised to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman shall come and he will crush the head of the serpent. He will destroy the evil one. He will do away with sin and death. That was the first promise. And they were saved by faith in that promise. And then if we go forward just a little bit to Abraham, that promise was expanded. That promise included now a blessing to the entire world. God was saying this salvation that I'm revealing is going to be for all nations. The seed of the woman would bless all the nations of the world. And we could just spend all day going bit by bit through the Old Testament and seeing God's salvation revealed just a little bit more and a little bit more all the way until it's fully revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Paul uses a really dramatic uh, way of expressing that truth in the next chapter in Galatians. This is what he says in Galatians 4, 4 through 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. When Jesus came, the promises of God were fulfilled perfectly. Promised salvation became accomplished salvation. All of the promises became yes and amen in Jesus Christ alone. 
God has one story. And in that story, Christ alone is always at the center. God has one people. And that people is, are always saved by faith alone. He finishes with verse 9. He says, So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. It's very simple. Abraham believed the promises of God, and he lived. Jesus himself affirms this truth for us in John chapter 8, 56. He says to Pharisees, no less, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. That is the ancient way of salvation. Do you follow the ancient way of salvation, the way salvation was from the very beginning? Are you trusting in God's covenant promises? Are you trusting fully in God's promised Messiah? Are you relying on him by grace alone and adding nothing to his finished work? Are you a son of Abraham by faith? Let's pray.